You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 60, another milestone. Wow. We're getting closer to 100. So that... Are we going to make it? Oh, yeah. We'll definitely make it. <laughs> so within the year, right? Awesome. Yeah. So, so I know I'm really excited about our guest today and I want to kick in. But first, I just want a quick shirt update. I've noticed some of our, our uh, the, our listeners on the Facebook uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group are starting to post photos that the shirts are coming out. I'm just curious if you have a update. Yeah, so we're approaching $300 to donate. I think awesome. it's like 30-some shirts have been purchased, so that's awesome. Uh, it slowed down definitely since our release, but yeah. like I said, I haven't really marketed it that much yet, so we still got to put it on our Pines Nursery Facebook page and, and on, uh, on Instagram, and there's some places we need to put it out still. But yeah. always stay tuned, and we'll, we'll release it, or we'll let you know when, um, when these come up, but we are going to have some uh some like non-profit specific shirts that yeah. come out too and, we so yeah and we'll i can't see wait those. we haven't even gotten our hours yet so i yeah. haven't, I haven't oh, yeah. even had a chance to wear them but i did order some of one of the designs that we haven't released yet yes. so i'll have yeah. to keep that one secret yeah. until <laughs> until we release it until yeah. we release it but i'm really excited there's some great new designs coming and uh i'm really excited that everyone's uh helping out some of these great nonprofits and other organizations by purchasing shirts so we can donate money. So yeah, exactly. 100% of the proceeds go to help these companies that yeah. come on to be our guests. So mm-hmm. uh, so we're excited and we'll keep that going. But Yeah, so we do have limited time today, so we want to keep this uh, the beginning quick. So let's get into our introduction. Uh, there's two things that have come up quite a bit on our, our podcast, one of them being like habitat management or, or land management. We uh, get asked that And then the, the other being Mount Cuba Center. So we figured, well, why not put those together <laughs> and have on the natural lands manager from Mount Cuba Center to kind of talk about both. So, uh, Nate, why don't you, you give a better intro than I just did and um, and tell us a little bit about Mount Cuba Center and then yourself as well. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, and I'm glad people are talking about Mount Cuba Center. All uh, the time? Good. All the time? <laughs> uh, so I'm the natural lands manager here at Mount Cuba. My name is Nate Champagne. Uh, I've worked here for 10 years now. Um, so I'm just starting to learn uh, the landscape a little bit and um, be able to make better decisions. So let me tell you a little bit about Mount Cuba. Uh, so we are a nonprofit conservation organization focused on uh, native plants. So we're a botanic garden focused on native plants, supporting native plants and building resilient, ecologically functioning landscapes. Uh, so we have around 50 acres of curated garden areas and um, a little over a thousand acres of natural uh, habitats that I manage. Wow. Um, So even before that, Mount Cuba was kind of founded or started in 1935. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lamont DuPont Copeland uh, purchased the property in 1935, built their large estate and started acquiring land and preserving land um, up until today, 2020. So Mm -hmm. in 2001, Mrs. Copeland passed away and um, we became Mount Cuba Center, uh, the Botanic Garden. Awesome. And I I will say, for those of you listening who aren't from the the Mid-Atlantic or Southern New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, um, you may have heard that DuPont name before and it is connected to the the company that you've heard from and um and also connected to longwood gardens as well right but this is a a separate property that's in my opinion really really cool you know and the funny thing is whenever i think of mount kuba i think of the gardens and i I don't always think about the natural land so i was i was hoping that we obviously having you on we're going to focus on that but um I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the natural lands and some of the interesting characteristics of natural. I was really shocked to learn that it was Appalachian. You know, where we're at, we're mainly coastal plain and just bordering Piedmont. So that kind of, it makes sense, but I just wasn't thinking about it. So I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, and that and and that's uh, perfectly normal. I hear that all the time. Uh, people know us for the gardens, but even more and more, thankfully, uh, they're realizing we have a thousand acres of natural areas, and we're managing those ecologically to su to support ecological function and systems. So, um, and and it makes sense because up until recently, up until this year, actually in 2021, you weren't really allowed to visit the natural lands. When you came to visit Mount Cuba Center, you toured the gardens. Um, you might have taken a class, uh, but the only opportunity to get out into the natural areas portion of the property was was to sign up with a private tour through me or to so I would lead some uh, a handful of classes a year out there. So but in 2021, just just this spring, we opened up what we call our trails and we expanded the garden experience out into the natural lands uh, and we've opened up two miles of trails and you can see the rolling Piedmont, like you just mentioned, Fran. So we are in the Appalachian Piedmont, uh, which is um, a unique geographic area. Yeah. And we're only, like you said, you think of like Delaware, uh, New Jersey as coastal plain, but there's 5% of the state, uh, the Northern portion of the state that is above that fault line. And we are in the Northern, the Appalachian Piedmont. So we have unique plants and geology that are unique to us um, that are, are found no, nowhere else in the state. So it's it's really a unique place. Wow. Was, was it at one point not a plan to open the natural lands? Was that just a, a buffer and then that that mission changed over time? Or was it always a plan to maybe open it and just wasn't ready? Yeah, I think it was always in the back of our mind and it just happened organically. You know, we always, we kind of started small and core to the, to the main house and then We've slowly, as we've expanded guests, we've needed to expand our uh, opportunities for guests and our experiences. So we have, um, you know, slowly opened up areas away from the main house. And I think, so it was always kind of in the back of our minds. Uh, the more the natural lands has been managed and developed, the more we feel like, hey, we this is, this is important stuff we want to show people. Um, so that, that was in our, in the back of our head and then i think COVID actually spurred a lot of it too so mm -hmm. more people wanted to get outside uh we had to limit limit the number of people in our garden spaces um with social distancing so it was just a, a number of factors came together said hey we we are proud of our natural lands we want people to see them we also need people to space out in the garden so let's open up some additional spaces for people to go to go see Wow. So as the, the land was originally purchased and then acquired over the years, was it already natural lands or was it land that had to be converted to natural lands? Yeah. So it, this area had been heavily impacted, just like everywhere in the mid-Atlantic, mm -hmm. um, with European settlement, human development, fragmentation, farming. So all of this land, you know, at the turn of the 18, 1900s, had been cleared for agriculture for the okay. most part. Yeah. So a lot of the forests had been cleared and this area was farmed right up until like the 1950s. Um, so the Copelands, as farms were abandoned and farmers stopped farming, the Copelands slowly bought up that old farmland and then we're, we're in the process of restoring it and reverting it back yeah. to some sort of a semblance um, of what it once was. Wow, it's what, and I would imagine that has to be challenging, especially now that it's, open to the public I, I would imagine five years ago if it wasn't open to the public it was a little bit easier to manage uh or 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 is it i'm not i'm just assuming yeah, yeah no you're right i mean there that was one thing i was actually worried about and one thing i didn't want to lose is my ability to manage the landscape like the way i, I wanted to and needed to um but also i did want guests out there so I, so that's i kind of play this balancing act of we do want people out there. We do want visitation while I'm doing my management. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, we've actually, it hasn't been that bad. So um, the trails that we opened are through mainly old agricultural hay fields. Um, we've been maintaining these kind of pathways or trails um, for the last few years anyway. So it was really getting people out there has been pretty minimal disturbance on both like our work that we need to get done and also like the ecology and wildlife yeah. yeah factor too now now 
I'm, I'm assuming it's not just you that's going and doing this stuff. It, you yeah. have a team of people because I was going to say like a thousand acres is a lot of property <laughs> to manage on your own. Yeah. So how many people are you working with to to keep the natural lands um, natural? Yeah, it's a lot of land to manage. Uh, there are there's four full time staff, uh, myself and three others, and then each year we generally we usually get a intern. Uh, summer intern or year-long intern and we can hire some seasonal help mm -hmm. but there's four full-time staff that yeah man and that's that's still a pretty small yeah. crew for that amount of space so it is. It but is. we'll get in some of the techniques you're using to do that but yeah i, I just had one quick yeah, question after. just to, to paint the picture for our listeners that have never visited so you you have the gardens you have the thousand acres what is the pressure like around the area is it developed or is it still natural land somewhat surrounding you we're pretty developed around okay. us so we're kind of this island um of preserved conserved land in the middle of development um so we're not we're just outside of wilmington okay. uh newark delaware um and up on to like the brandywine area up on route mm -hmm. 202 i mean it's pretty highly developed around us but um we, there is there are a few conserved properties throughout this region so um, in this Red Clay Valley watershed, there's Mount Cuba Center, there's Winter Tour, Longwood, Delaware Nature Society, Flint Woods Preserve. Yeah. So um, because of the DuPonts and some other individuals in the area, there's been a lot of pres preserved and conserved mm -hmm. land. And luckily, we're, we're all kind of contiguous in this strip up the red clay watershed. So but I, other than that, it's pretty developed. Around I, us. I live and, and I know a lot of that. I would imagine has to be more recent. I lived in Newark and worked at the Connor Pyle Company in the late 90s, um, mm -hmm. mid to late 90s. And I know going back to there now today compared to the late 90s, it's I wouldn't I don't even recognize it when I go back. Yeah. What was all open farm field is all houses now or businesses. Yeah, and or, it's, it's it seems to be happening at an exponential rate, but um, just like everything else. But it, I think really since the 70s and 80s, it really picked up like if. I talked to some people that had been here, you know, for their entire lives. And, you know, back in the 70s, if you lived in Hocaston or around this area, you were in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> no farmland and, you know, nobody came out here. But yeah. now um, it's just these farm fields have been converted to, to housing developments and apartment complexes. And and um, it's it's becoming, you know, in, unfortunately you know pretty developed and that's the the reason why we wanted to paint that picture because we wanted to talk about some of the challenges it is to to take care of these natural lands so i would imagine with that development surrounding that there has to be i'm i'm just assuming increased deer pressure uh or or something like that do you have those challenges as the oh, senior yeah. around okay <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that's probably one of the most challenging things, and I mean I haven't been to everywhere in the country, but I personally feel I've been I grew up in Central New York, you know I've been out west and down south. This Mid Atlantic region is probably some of the highly disturbed landscapes around, and it's um, because of that disturbance. There's all these negative uh, you know, cascading factors: high deer populations, invasive plants, just poor. Um, soils that have been you know farmed for years and years and years so managing land in the mid-atlantic is i personally feel is pretty hard <laughs> i i would imagine what are what would be some of the other major challenges that you face we want to go into all the positives i just i'm just trying to paint a good picture of yeah you know it's it's a great it's a it's a great mission to have but i'm sure the start of it's not easy to get where you're at and then maintain it yeah so i guess for the some of the biggest challenges is that disturbance um because the traditional i guess restoration approaches that you learn about in college and school and go to conferences you know you know in out in illinois or in missouri and hear about those practices do not happen or the same way on my land um so it, that's been a huge challenge is just like learning how our land, you know, responds to restoration and disturbance, different disturbances. Um, because I know, you know, in other areas that have some remnant prairies out west, you know, some of their uh, restoration recommendations might be to till the soil or to mm -hmm. disc. 
And I, you know, that would be the last thing I would want to do on my landscape because it, it's just been so highly disturbed that um, there's a there's a load of invasive seed bank. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I want to do is disturb that seed bank. So it's just it's kind of just the hardest thing is is just to work the land and learn, um, you know, Mount Cuba's landscape and how it responds. So you we mentioned invasive plants, and um, I actually back up a little bit further than that when they first or Mount Cuba first started to to uh, d- develops the wrong word what's the word I'm looking for friend when they started oh, trying to reclaim reclaim so- and make yeah. this a natural land setting what did yeah. it look like before and then what how did you get started what was the first step yeah so you know I use the term natural lands pretty loosely mm-hmm. you know at Mount Cuba I always you'll see me do a quotation mark <laughs> all speak because nothing is you know black and white or cut and dry or natural really anymore so um i guess i've only been working here 10 years i want to you know there was people working on the landscape prior to me um a lot of the land had just reverted naturally after those old farms had Mm -hmm. been abandoned and then uh we kind of started our natural lands department i would say 12 or 15 years ago when we specifically focused a person out there managing the landscape with invasive species management. Um, So there have been some people working prior to me, but I came on 10 years ago and was basically, yeah, just dealt this old historic agrarian situation um, where there'd been a lot of disturbance, a lot of land clearing, a lot of farming. So, and, and my goal is to slowly restore that and revert it back to like ecologically um, important habitats that support mm-hmm. ecology. So um, it's just, it's a process. And I use a lot of ecological thinking and basic core ecological fundamentals of creating core chunks of habitats, uh, linking habitats together through corridors, um, things like that, those core foundational um, ecological processes to, to help prioritize and set goals on the landscape as far as restoration. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll, I'll follow up with this and say how much of it was like, well, from what I understand, some of these old fields where you basically have a field that was farmed and then you just stop farming it, you can get some really interesting early successional species pop up. A lot of that stuff's in the seed bank over yeah. time and just it doesn't take that long uh, for it to become a, a functioning habitat. Again, but where we are in the mid-Atlantic, it might need a little bit of steering. Um, so that it doesn't become a, a poor habitat. So I guess what were some of the techniques? Like, I'm guessing you didn't go out and say, okay, this was a farm field and now we want it to be a meadow. Let's just go and plant the whole thing, uh, especially with four people or five people. So how, how much of it was hands-on versus just letting nature do its thing? Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about a couple of specific different scenarios maybe or situations mm-hmm. and how to handle it. So I've... I use the term manage succession because just like you say, where we are, you can't just walk away from something and expect it to turn into a forest in 50 years. Um, it just, because it's been so highly disturbed and fragmented and destroyed, basically, um, those processes don't happen like they used to. So we have to manage the successional process. So there are some areas um, that we want to revert back to either an early successional, maybe or mid-successional scrub shrub habitat. Um, And then there's other areas that we want to revert back to forest because one of our main goals of supporting ecological function is to have diversity of habitat types on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, Within those habitat types, there's diversity of plants. So diversity supports diversity and so on. So with diverse habitats, you have diverse plants and diverse fauna and so on. So um, if we are trying to build or allow a mid-successional scrub shrub habitat um, there's a lot of areas that we have just let old agricultural fields go through succession but all the while we're very heavy-handed on uh, um, what we allow and don't allow to come into that field Um, so each year um, what i do pride ourselves on is we're very thorough and very um, targeted and, ha- mm. and, and good at what we do. <laughs> and that allows us to, to manage the landscape with four staff. So um, each year, you know, we know 
at a certain time, it's time for us to go in with either mechanical removal or some herbicides and spot treat out the bad plants, the non-native invasive plants that we don't want to succeed in the field and um, not treat or allow the, the, the plants that we do want to come into the field. So it's just year after year of re removing or spot treating or pulling or spraying the plants that we don't want to succeed into the field and you know allowing the plants that we do want. So just year after year after year, most of this stuff just takes time. Yeah. Uh, so through time, you will get, you know, through the seed bank, you know, a, a habitat or a, a situation that you are intending, but it just takes time. And I feel like that's where, you know, six, our projects fail, you know, either they don't allow, they don't have the time, they don't allow enough time uh, for that process to take place, or they don't um, have the consistency back on those sites year after year after year to, to see that project mm -hmm. through. I, I, and I think a lot of our listeners, we, we have a lot of listeners that have uh, nice size properties that they're trying to convert or, or maintain in natural lands. And I think they get overwhelmed of where to start and they, because you want to see a difference immediately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure it's not always easy to do that. So it's consistency is, is the main key, I would imagine. I would say, yeah. And, that, and that's – from my experience, having worked on the landscape for 10 years, I am now just starting to see a difference with, with just year after year after year of controlling some of these invasives and allowing the the good native plants to grow. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to see that come develop now mm -hmm. and you know, it takes five, six, seven, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so, and it is very easy to get overwhelmed. And that's yeah. the thing I hear too, it's like, whoa, like how do you manage all this? And, uh, like I'm just overwhelmed. I have this property is just covered with whatever can of thistle or porcelainberry, um, so it's just you have to compartmentalize it, kind of break it down, and just chip away at it and be consistent um, and, over time. And one of the biggest messages I'm taking away that's important for anything like this that you're saying is that you have to have a plan. Mm -hmm. You can't just you can't just go in and say today i think i'll do this no it, it's a it's a plan yeah. and it's it's consistent to that plan so yeah and that's definitely another thing i preach is um setting goals and working backwards so mm -hmm. you know i rarely ever think about like i don't like the first thing i think think about is not like what do i do the first thing i think about is like where do i want to be um okay. so i'm often thinking you know in restoration uh terms in decades down the road um so where do i what do i want this place to be in 50 years 100 years even and then what do and working backwards what do i need to do today to to achieve that desired result so um it's often thinking backwards or starting at your goals to that that drive your decision making day to day week to week year to year are, are you seeing a difference in your 10 years in the amount of invasive plant pressure that you obviously you're getting better because of the consistency in the plan of of it on your land but are, are you seeing maybe on the boundaries are you seeing mm. a big difference maybe an increase over the last 10 years of, of what's popping up or is it you know relatively the same i would say in my 10 years it's probably relatively the same okay um what happens though often is where you had invasives before maybe where you spent some time there's not those invasives, but they pop up in new areas mm -hmm. or you do treat an invasive in a site, but it's replaced by a different invasive <laughs> often like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go and kill all this Canada thistle in my field. But then it leaves, kind of, but then it's still grass the next year or, or something else. So, yeah. mm -hmm. so you know, I often trade invasives. Uh, I treat one and another one pops up or areas, you know, I treat Canada thistle in one portion of the field and there was another portion with that never previously had Canada thistle and all of a sudden the next year there's Canada thistle over there. So it just mm -hmm. seems like I'm, I'm getting ahead of it slowly, but yeah. always like finding new things and new places and chasing things around. So, I mean, I, I feel, I feel people's like, <laughs> we love uh, the, uh, what Delaware just did with the banning of invasive, was it 25 or 30 invasives to sale of and planting mm -hmm. up? Is there anything, exactly. is, is there anything that you, and I, I'm sure that's a huge win, especially in your area. Is there any plant that you can think of that you would have added to the list that wasn't on? <laughs> <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Well, just getting back. Yeah, that is that was great legislation. Yeah. Mount Cuba was a big part of that. Some of our staff members mm -hmm. were, were actually directly involved with recommending plants for the list. Okay. Um, so that was a huge win, not for us, but, uh, you know, just ecology yeah. and mm -hmm. the whole region. Um, I think the list was pretty good. Um, now, I, I can't think off the top of my head if okay. there's one would necessarily add to the list. I mean, there's definitely things that I see on our property because of the history of this land being disturbed and a gardened area for so long. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, we weren't always a native plant garden. We, yeah. we had non-native invasive plants early on before we knew they were, you know, detrimental. Yeah. Um, so we are still, we still see a lot of those in the landscape and we fight things at Mount Cuba that I don't see um, in other areas, uh, Photinia velosa, is is a plant that we have that not many other people around me probably have to deal with um it's an ornamental plant um some some of the viburnum ornamental viburnums um a viburnum mm -hmm. dilatatum viburnum placatum the double file um viburnum i see a lot in the landscape burning bush of course yeah um that's that's one that i, I have a hard time uh getting getting ahead of i mean viburnum placatum and dilatatum are still landscape staples you know yeah. that's yeah and i understand that that's that's one that people just and again it's it's another thing like barberry where they don't think it's invasive because they don't see it escaping their yard but mm -hmm. but which, it is which you are <laughs> going to talk about i i meant to tell fran this before but i'm gonna tell you right now i think we do that as the next buzz as the actual definitions of what invasive is okay because yeah and nate you probably see this on facebook too this has been really driving me nuts lately but you have the people who are like and it just happened the other day where I was like, oh, well, that's you're, the plant you're talking about is actually an invasive plant. Um, and especially you shouldn't be promoting it in, in a native plant setting. Um, and they're like, well, I keep an eye on it and it's not invasive where I am. I'm like, but it's, that's not how it works. It's not, invasive doesn't mean it's spreading in your garden. It means that well, birds are eating I, the seeds and bringing them different places. It's moving other ways or windblown. There's all different I, things that I, can happen. I will say, and the yeah. plant was, I'm going to say what the plant was. It was... Uh, Rosa Sharon. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. my fiance's property right now, I took account after this, has over 20 Rosa Sharon on her property, none of which had been planted there. She didn't plant any of them. They just appeared. So, and it's, and every, every year there's more. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, you know, but she also has a, a natural area that it's, mm -hmm. it's stabilizing in, not in a mode. Of, yeah. If it's, if it's seeding in your lawn and you're mowing your lawn, it's not going to come up, but where it's yeah, allowed just, to come up. Yeah, just like you mentioned, Fran, I mean, most people, I hear the same thing. Well, oh, I didn't realize that was invasive. I have my yard and I never, you know, I don't see it spreading. It's be, and it's because they're in a highly manicured landscape where they're mowing their lawn continuously. They're weeding things out. Mm -hmm. I usually tell them, well, come to my woods. I'll show you, <laughs> yeah. show you that it's invasive. Yeah. Like burning bush is one. Like, you know, yeah. oh, I have a burning bush and I, I don't see it spreading around my yard. And I was like, well, I'll show you some woods where it's just 100% mm -hmm. burning bush. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Japanese barberry is another one. But yeah. And what, you, one of them, oh, you go, friend. No, I was gonna say there, there's a, a park right down the street from here, and there's one strip along the park, uh, a walkway of the park where it's a line of trees, and there's burning bush all under the trees because you can see that's where the birds were sitting, that's where they were dropping the mm -hmm. seeds, and that's it's all the whole understory is nothing but burning bush, none of which were planted there. So it's, yeah. it, it, you just have to look. Sometimes your eye doesn't see it, but once you notice it, like it focuses in, and then you're like, oh, there's more, there's more, yeah. there's more. So, I'm sorry, yeah. I keep cutting you off. Though. Oh, no big deal. I keep talking it's over um, one of my favorite phrases that uh, is from Sam Drogi, and he talks about editing out different plants and uh, and how I guess basically he's referring to invasive control, but he's using editing out, and he'll talk either about mechanical or or herbicide treatments to do that. What are the species you're fighting the most, and um, and then are there any that are like particularly hard that you just can't get a hold of? Uh, even through conventional methods um yeah um so we definitely we use all the tools at our disposal to fight invasive plants so we have like an integrated approach um there's mechanical re removal you can do with chainsaws and bladed weed trimmers and loppers like physically cutting things down uh we also use herbicides and chemical controls sparingly um it's definitely a tool in our toolbox and managing a thousand acres we need to utilize it um, I can understand if on your home landscape, you just have a little bit of space. If you want to just not use herbicides and try to do it strictly mechanical, it's a little more feasible, but for us, it's not 
feasible. Um, we can't spend, we can't be going back to that same site five, six times a year to cut things down. But the, um, the important we, thing, what you're saying is it's a tool in your toolbox. It's not the only tool in your tool toolbox. That's the big difference. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And oftentimes, so these chemical herbicides are really the, um, not usually the first thing I go to either, especially on larger woody shrubs like bush honeysuckle, Linicera macchiae or bush honeysuckle, um, multiflora rose, Japanese privet, winged euonymus. Um, I'll usually, these plants are generally when I find them, they're, they're big, they're six, seven feet, 12 feet high sometimes. So rather than going in with an herbicide and just um, spraying the whole bush, um, we'll generally either cut them down. So use mechanical removal first and then apply herbicide to the stump, like a cut stump mm -hmm. treatment. Um, or we'll cut them down and let them reflush and then we'll just spray full, do a foliar application on a smaller reflush. Mm -hmm. okay. It's this combined approach of mechanical removal, chemical removal or mechanical removal and burning um, that usually like the one, two punch is what's needed to kind of knock some of these out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the, the techniques I just saw recently on, um, on larger stuff is to actually like girdle it with a chainsaw, something that so you're not actually even cutting it down. And then you're painting that, uh, basically the wound you just opened up because the plant is going to be sending resources there, uh, yeah. then anyway. So it makes your, your herbicide more effective. Um, yeah, and, and you're not getting time. overspray. It's it's literally painted onto that that stump or yeah. sprayed just onto that area. So yeah, and that's a great technique, especially for larger things, Norway maples, mm -hmm. Atlantis, um, where these trees maybe are out of the way in a back area that aren't going to pose a risk once they die. Um, you can often just score like either with an axe or a hatchet or a chainsaw, just make some cuts in the in mm -hmm. the bark, and then inject the herbicide directly into that cut so like you said you're not using excess herbicide in the landscape and it's translocated through the cambium layer up and down into the root system so a great time to do that is in the fall mm -hmm. fall winter is a great time to do like stump treatments when those plants are taking that energy back into the roots awesome yeah. awesome no yeah. i'm sorry go ahead Tom. no i'm letting you go i'm letting you so, go so uh, i was going to say the other thing that that is a benefit is especially like you said it's out of the way or someplace you can afford to have that tree eventually fall well now you created a whole bunch of different kind of habitat as well so it's a that's another benefit of of doing it that way and i shouldn't even explain girdling more It'd be if you took a a trees well all plants i guess well trees in particular they're using the bark as a, a protectant but then just underneath it's using it for for nutrient flow and water flow so by severing that you're basically killing the tree by by disrupting its process to yep. make nutrients flow so and and live <laughs> so um i don't know if, how many people at home actually know that, that that's how where the the nutrient flow is not it's a xylem yeah. and phloem correct yeah, right exactly under the bark, yeah. So, yeah. so that was my my basic way of trying to explain it but i don't maybe i could confuse more people than, than i intended doing that so, so you mentioned habitat as well so and i know we talked about deer do you manage deer pressure is that something do you have like deer fencing is there is that a, a management tool that you have in your your arsenal also yes so one of our main goals is to support native plants and native you know functioning ecosystems a direct negative like a f impact to supporting native plants or white-tailed deer <laughs> so high levels of white-tailed deer so we just like everywhere in the mid-atlantic through fragmentation habitat loss development um lack of hunting in some areas deer populations have expanded and they're at numbers you know way exceeding you know carrying capacity 80 100 deer per square mile so when we plant when we do restoration projects we have to do something we have to protect um, the trees the plants from deer pressure so it depends on the situation um, sometimes in a small area if we're just if we're doing a reforestation project restoration with trees uh, we might cage individual trees um, to protect them from deer browse and or if we're doing a larger area it might be financially uh, appropriate to, and make more sense just to cage the whole 
Okay. In that case, we might build, you know, a few acre deer exclosure and then mm -hmm. plant within that. So there's pros and cons, you know, both yeah. monetary pros and cons, and then also how the land um, ecological response pros and cons. So when we're caging individual trees, the areas in between the trees are still able, deer are still able to access those areas and, and browse. Mm -hmm. So you're, we don't see the regeneration of other stuff like the natural succession um, in those areas because deer are still allowed in. But areas that we cage entirely and exclude deer, we see, we definitely see more regeneration in between the trees that we planted. Awesome. So you gotta weigh the pros and cons and it's kind of, again, like what are your goals and what resources do you have available to you? But so we do have to protect everything we plant from deer. There's a few things. I know there's a lot of deer uh, lists on deer resistant stuff and some of it's good information, some of it's not. It, some works with 30 deer per square mile, but not a hundred. Yeah. So it's you gotta take all that with a grain of salt. But. The, the one beautiful thing about all the techniques that you've done for invasive plants and deer pressure and, and creating and, and protecting natural lands over the decades is the documentation that you have of what you've learned over all this time. So, you know, we wanted to try to focus on some of the positives. If there were any significant or important findings that you've found over the last 20 years of great techniques or, or, or just certain things that you didn't expect to see. I guess kind of like I mentioned earlier, I think for me, I, I came into this wanting to see immediate results too. And like, so I came in and I would do things and I was like, it's not working. Like what happened? Or I need to do something else. And I've just learned over the last 10 years, I need to be a little bit more patient and let it let the land, the land's going to take time to respond. Um, so I guess that's kind of the where I'm at now in my career is I've just realized I need I need to be more patient and and humans like people think on this short time frame they want to see immediate results this year and um, sometimes you can do that you buy a bunch of plugs pollinator plugs and you put them in and that that summer they look pretty good yeah. and next year they look great um, but with restoring like forests. Um, and doing invasive management and letting succession um, develop the landscape, I, it just takes time. So I guess that I would say one of the biggest things I've learned through land management is just to be patient. Um, so I, that's just awesome. Yeah. Awesome. What are some of the interesting plants you've seen uh, pop up that that just through these management practices that weren't there before, and then all of a sudden just kind of came in either through the seed bank or, or through other means um i mean we've de definitely we do prescribed fire here too and we can oh, talk okay. about that and talk specifically about our deer management too because i'm i'm definitely a proponent of deer management but um so some of the plants we've done some prescribed fire and after a burn we've seen some some orchids pop up um in different areas so some or unique orchids have popped up um and then just some common things too i'm starting to see some of the native forest regenerating so where it was um very invaded before in the understory and there wasn't a lot a lot allowed to um succeed mm -hmm. where we've done removals i'm seeing hickories and oaks and some of those like native trees coming back in so um it's not always about you know i rarely see like all this rare stuff pop up it's usually just I think it's success, success when I'm seeing some of that common native stuff. Yeah. Too. And where um, were you seeing the hickories and oaks, oaks pop up? I'm, I might have missed something. <laughs> oh, uh, in some yeah. of the forest that we've done some understory invasive removal. Of. Okay, gotcha. Any? Yeah. So previously it could have been, like I said, 100% burning bush. In areas we've been on it for three, four, five, ten years now, mm -hmm. we're seeing little hickory saplings and oaks that are starting to come back. Oh, that's um, awesome. Also, means our deer populations probably we're um at lower levels where it needs to be so yeah. i mean all of these little key like things that i'm seeing in the environment lead me to you know we're on the right track it gives me hope just yeah. to keep doing what we're doing given the age of the seed bank any chestnuts pop up by any chance we haven't seen any chestnuts pop up okay. um we do have there are a few chestnuts locally um one thought to be you know native a native chestnut and it's Awesome. Blood resistance pretty big. So our um, state botanist has taken some samples and we've sent genetic samples off. So awesome. 
seen any just I haven't seen any seedlings respond to our management. Yeah. Awesome. So what are, what are you guys doing for for deer management? You brought up that you you are managing that population, and then you did the exclosures as well. But um, what what are you guys doing? So we I we have a pretty intensive uh, deer management program. It's one thing I um, again pride ourselves on is that we are serious about deer hunting and serious about deer management. I don't want to eliminate deer. I know deer are native, natural part of the landscape, yeah. but their current levels are not native and natural. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just trying to build, bring those populations back into balance and, allow, and get them low to low enough levels where our, our, um, they're not impacting the ecology of the landscape as much. So we hunt pretty heavily um, with all sorts of means. Again, um, we hunt with crossbows and shotguns and bow and arrows which are all legal in the state of Delaware. Um, we have been issued crop damage permits. Mm. Our native plants are actually viewed as crops, um, thankfully, through from the state of Delaware. So we get nuisance crop damage permits um, to protect our native plants, which extends our um, hunting season awesome. a few more, like another month or so in, in the summer and a, a few months on the back end into the winter. So we can hunt deer uh, at extended period throughout the year. Um, we're allowed to bait. We do deer drives and hunt from tree stands. So pretty much from September on, it, it's it's one of our top priorities is to reduce deer population. Mm-hmm. And take it seriously, and we hunt hard. Yeah. And so, what's your current population, and um, and I guess your your target population as well? Yeah. So we actually do deer population estimates. Um, There's a few different ways to monitor deer populations. You can go on, you know, maybe do aerial surveys and physically count them and or do aerial surveys and use um, infrared remote Mm -hmm. sense um, to count individuals, which happens a lot in wintertime. Uh, We use a technique called camera trap surveys where we set out trail cameras, which are triggered by motion um, throughout the property at these same sites at the same time every single year and basically monitor our deer population that way. Okay. We use some of the male antler characteristics to as like individual bucks. And then basically through this, through our pictures and these formulas, we're able to determine our deer population going into hunting season. So we've been pretty stable at around 50 to 60 deer per square mile, mm-hmm. um, which I think is pretty good. Um, considering what it is around us in some areas like you know over mm-hmm. near you guys or and, and, oh, yeah. but that's with active management every year that's with active management so mm-hmm. with as hard as we hunt we're maintaining about a 50 or 60 wow. year square mile if we didn't hunt or just took a couple of years off that that deer population would grow up to the 100 100 um, deer per square mile that you hear about and it's other so with our active deer management we're maintaining about a 50 to 60 deer per square mile wow with with other than humans, are there any active predator on the on the property that you've seen come and go? I know predators tend to to travel, so yeah. yeah. Uh, up until a couple of years ago, no, okay. but a couple of years ago, um, coyotes started showing up on the landscape. Okay, they were void in this area. Um, we didn't have coyotes in Delaware, the northern part of Delaware. Um, we had a lot of fox, red fox, and they might take an injured fawn or something, but. Um, Coyotes are definitely, you know, a predator of deer, and we've had coyotes moving in the last couple of years, um, okay. and we're kind of seeing, we see a few every year, so seeing them more on a regular basis, so, wow. um, yeah, they're starting to come around, and I'm hopefully help us out with our management <laughs> a little bit. It's very controversial. Um, of course, hunters don't like the coyotes. They want to see more deer, yeah. and um, land managers and ecologists want, you know, that predator to come back into the system, so... Um, it's a little controversial, but I personally am, am glad and I like seeing coyotes on the property. And I think we've been lacking that kind of mid-level you know, predator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's important to have that balance. And that's something yeah. that's been lacking. That's why the deer population is out of – well, there's multiple reasons why mm-hmm. it's out of control. But that's one yeah. of the reasons. Yeah. I uh, didn't answer one of your – one of your questions was what are – do we have target deer numbers, I think, or what mm-hmm. are we trying to down to? So um, – I feel like we'll never, you know, we will never be at risk of eliminating the deer herd around mm-hmm. our area. So basically every year I, we try to harvest them all. 
Um, so knowing we're never going to do that. And even if we did, there was, there's so much immigration from around us. Mm -hmm. Um, these are areas outside of our, our land that cannot be hunted through regulations. Um, so there, there are such high deer densities around us that even if we got down to zero deer on our property through hunting season, through immigration, we would, we would have a a new population the very Mm -hmm. next year. So basically what our goal is is to shoot as many deer as possible um every single year knowing that you know we're never going to make that big of an impact on the herd but i guess really focus on the antlerless the does in the population Mm -hmm. so i require all of our hunters to shoot a antlerless deer a doe before they they harvest a buck um so we really target the females in the population because we know those are the individuals you know adding to the to Mm -hmm. the population yeah yeah, that's, you know, it's, I, I guess even just maintaining that population every year is a win. Yeah. 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 You know, based it, on that, it's yeah. a win. Yeah, and that's it, the, the research out of Duke Farms has said, like, you don't really get natural understory regeneration until you're below, like, 30 deer per square yeah. mile. Yeah. So that's yeah. still, you're double that and where we are, we're, what, quintuple that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're really high. Yeah. So, you know, I like I said, I am seeing oaks and things responding, and there's a lag time, too. So, again, with this just being patient and mm-hmm. letting the land respond is, you know, it takes time for the land to recover. So even if you get your deer population down to where we are, 40, 50, 60 deer per square mile, we might not see those positive impacts, you know, mm-hmm. for four or five years down the road. The, yeah. the, the um, land is going to take time to respond to those lack of deer. So I, I'm, um, it's just, yeah. I'm very happy to hear you mention prescribed burning. And it's, you know, you need those different successions throughout. If you just had old growth forest, you know, which is fantastic, but you need all those other stages as well. Can we talk a little bit about the prescribed burning, just what your your mission is for that? Yeah. So, like I said, one of our main overarching goal is to support ecological function and one way we do that is to maintain diverse habitats on the property so we don't just want all old growth forests we want um, younger forest and mid-successional forest and early successional areas too Um, so one way we maintain our early successional habitats our grasslands are are, is through prescribed fire we we do mowing and haying and um, also prescribed fire so most of the land around our area does want to be forest it wants to revert back to forest um so to maintain open grasslands you need to incorporate some sort of disturbance so that disturbance is often mowing um but in our case we also use prescribed fire um each year to introduce disturbance and reset the successional process um we never burn in the same we usually don't burn in the same site two years in a row. Um, if there's an area we burned last year, we'll either leave it alone this year or mow it. Um, so it, all of the grasslands on the property are in some sort of rotation of um, management. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So prescribed fire is just, again, just like invasive management with mechanical versus chemical. It's just another tool and has, you know, sometimes different results. So it depends what you want to do. Um, I use fire a lot in areas that I want to reseed um, with plants. It provides a great um, seedbed. So in air, um, there might be grasslands. If you mow it, you still have a lot of thatch on the ground and you still have all those little stems of grass on the landscape. And um, if you were to overseed or spread seed on that site, you're not going to get good soil to seed contact um, unless you kind of drill seeded it in. Um, but even then you still have you know all that above ground biomass so often i use prescribed fire as a step to reseed a site so i will uh, burn off a grassland or burn off a hay field uh, get down to that bare mineral soil and then i'll spread uh, the new like native grass seed into that bare soil awesome i you know to me that's an important tool only because in this area fires would naturally happen it's it's something that you know you look at our pine barrens and how they've evolved throughout the years so you can't necessarily just remove that from an area um because it's something i think that would naturally occur over time anyway if you're patient so it's i'm I'm happy to hear that that's one of the tools that you're using 
Yeah, and it works great for us. And then, you know, I was talking about it in a grassland situation, but in the pine barrens, I mean, there's species that require and depend mm -hmm. on fire for regeneration. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, fire, I think it's being started to be thought about again uh, more and more and utilized more. There was the whole, uh, you know, Smokey the Bear and fires are bad in the early 1900s. But I think now that we understand ecological processes better, that we understand that fires are a natural part of the, the system, you know, and used appropriately, um, there's, there's great benefits with, with fire. Now, I, I, we, we talked about some of the challenges that you have maintaining the natural lands. Is the natural lands surrounding the garden challenging for the gardens themselves? Do they, do they have their own set of challenges <laughs> just because of that, that area? Yeah, that's I, I kind of smile because I hear that a little bit like, you know, your weeds are coming into my garden. Um, <laughs> so because yeah. it's two different missions, basically. Yeah, it's different missions and it's just different scales of of um, maintenance, I guess. So where in the gardens, it's it's supposed to be gardened and highly a little bit more manicured. And we have a higher staff ratio per acre of land to, to, to maintain that area. Um, so it's a little high, more highly manicured, and but then uh, they bought right up against the natural areas in some some parts, and it's it's um, a little bit it's less maintained and more invaded. So yeah, it is a little bit of a challenge in some um, where you know some of our non-native plants in our natural lands are, are coming into the garden space, but um, I guess it is what it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know we we do try to to take care of the invasives right along the edge so they're not feeling the pressure as much yeah. but yeah i would imagine like anything else you just have to work together yeah. towards towards that common goal yeah 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 we definitely work together on that space and um like i said i i do we do focus a little bit more effort right along the garden edge because you know we do we do not want to put that pressure on them yeah you know? So. so we're getting close to the time we have to wrap up. Yeah. So why don't we we always end with uh, with two things. The first being we want to know what your favorite native plan is. And then the second is each one of us kind of gives a final thought to, to sum up the conversation, which this conversation probably could have gone another hour. So yeah, there's questions we didn't even get <laughs> but, get uh, to. But so yeah, and I'm happy to uh, Tom. I don't know yeah. if, Fran, if you if if you can attach or please share my contact information. Yeah, definitely. We can definitely do that. Funnel questions through me. I mean, any additional questions or comments, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to, to take. We would love it. Well, we're going to put all the social media links on our website with the show notes and, and we'll attach you, uh, your contact yeah. information. Yeah, I'm well. glad we were able to squeeze this one in. Yeah, <laughs> so, I am too. I am but, too. Uh, yeah. So what is your, your favorite native plant? Uh, I get asked that a little bit and, and I really, I don't, I have a hard time with this one. I don't really have a favorite native plant. I, I I have a lot of favorites. And the more I think about it, the favorite plants that I like to see or plant in the landscape are favorites of, of the fauna in, that I'm trying to support. So I like things that bloom, that flower, that um, provide seed for wildlife. So some of my favorite, you know, just kind of thinking down a list, some of my favorite plants um just recently you know cephalanthus occidentalis is starting to bloom i love cephalanthus in a wet uh a wet area um bees butterflies love the flowers on cephalanthus um vibranum prunifolium is another one uh understory kind of small tree that flowers and in the spring and produces berries in the fall for birds um great understory native tree that doesn't seem to to get browsed too heavily in my area anyway on deep for deer of course, like big white oaks. I love mature mm -hmm. white oaks. Um, so it, kind of those workhorses. I like uh, plants that support the ecosystem, the yeah. workhorses in the ecosystem, um, kind of that the backbone uh, of the, you know, supporting the ecosystem. Yeah. So. And that cool. black hall viburnum has a great fall color as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and that's, yeah. you know, it's a little bit different than, than what you see. But no, great choices. Thank you. So we, we always kind of end with a final thought. And Tom and I will do this as well, but we give you the floor for a minute or two just to – you can summarize. You can add something we haven't talked about. You can promote something. However you want to use the time, you can, and we hand it over to you. Yeah. Well, I do want to say, you know, please please visit Mount Cuba Center if you haven't. Uh, we're not too – depending on where you are, if you're in the mid-Atlantic region, um, 
we we kind of pride ourselves on the number of botanic gardens that we have around. Mm-hmm. We there's 30 30 gardens within 30 miles of us. So if you come to this area, please you know stay and visit. Um, we just opened up two miles of trails at Mount Cuba. We have a lot of education programs that you can sign up for. So please come to Mount Cuba. But just other than that, the one thing I, I think I wanted to say is just uh, encourage you and not, you know, don't get overwhelmed or, or down or discouraged on um, with invasive plants or deer pressure or anything. Mm-hmm. I think the one key takeaway that I've learned, again, I, I've st- said this a few times, is just like consistency, 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 and being patient. So, you know, come up with a plan, be targeted with it, and do it year after year after year, and be patient. So that's kind of the one thing that I wanted to like kind of end with. That's a fantastic final thought. We had you brought up education. We didn't even get a chance to yeah, talk to yeah. you about education. Yeah. When but, we even set out our original list of like guests we wanted to have, we're like, well, we're going to need to have on Nate from Mount Cuba and Sam from Mount Cuba and Eileen <laughs> and Greg and like all. <laughs> we're going to have like a whole like years worth of Mount Cuba episodes at one point. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tom, would you like to go? Or would you yeah, like to yeah. Go? So mine is just going to the key back on the the deer management aspect we've talked about it so many times about it's just a huge issue in our area not across the country but in the mid-atlantic in particular our deer numbers are way too high and dr jay kelly from raton valley community college who's one of the biggest deer researchers in or on their impact of the habitat in new jersey he said it's an animal rights issue uh, you can't think about taking life of the deer because they are preventing not just the plants to live but all the things that require those plants so yeah, you do have to remove numerous deer from the landscape, but you're allowing all these other uh, a diversity of species to flourish, not just the plants, but all the insects that rely on them, all the birds that rely on those plants, or the insects that are feeding on those plants, and then all the way up the food chain. So it's a, it's a controversial topic, and I know there's a lot of people who, when that gets brought up, just kind of instantly tune out, but it's a, a necessary thing we need to talk about specifically with native habitats. Yeah. So. Awesome. That's a great point. So I think mine's pretty simple. You know, over the years and, uh, you know, I've known of Mount Cuba for a long time, having lived in the area. Um, I worked with uh, Dr. Dick Lighty's son and, and Dr. Lighty's involvement in Mount Cuba. And, and you, you always hear about the gardens and rightfully so. But I learned a lot today, and I, and I learned a lot about the natural lands. And again, that was part of the reason why we started this podcast was all these great organizations that are doing great ecological things. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe everyone has a little bit different of approach, but we're all shooting or striving for the same end result. So, you know, please, now that it's open, go visit Mount Cuba. Go walk the two miles of trails. See what they're doing. It's 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 a wonderful thing, and there's, there's a lot more of these, these things happening that – that you may not even know about so just make sure that you know get involved are, are there ways that people can get involved other than just visiting um are there volunteers are there ways to donate yeah uh we have we have a whole visitor program uh visitor coordinator or uh volunteer okay. uh, i'm a volunteer coordinator um so mm-hmm. we we have a lot of volunteers at mount cuba uh we also have some citizen science projects where you can get involved in too so it's not just yeah you can not just come and visit Mount Cuba but you can get involved um, through our volunteer program or citizen science program oh, that's fantastic that's yeah. fantastic so get involved yeah yeah Mount Cuba is doing as much or, or more than anyone else in uh, in the native plant space so yeah, I it's agree. A, especially in the I mid-Atlantic agree. it's a great uh, place to visit and and help out it's a so. fantastic resource so with that we want to thank you for joining us today we hope you enjoyed listening to Nate Champ- Champagne Champagne right did I say Champagne. it right? Champagne. Okay. <laughs> I nailed it the first time. <laughs> but um, uh, from Mount Cuba Center, uh, for more information, you're going to go visit their website, which Fran did not put in here for I, me. I didn't which, put uh, in. <laughs> so, but we'll have the link on our website so you can go visit their Nate, website. Do you and know the, the website link off the top of your head? Yeah. So it's just <laughs> www.mtcuba.com. 
mtcubacenter.org. So mtcubacenter.org. mtcubacenter.org. All right, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, visit there, and then you'll learn a lot more. I know we both did one just researching for this episode. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we're giving a huge thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Uh, besides streaming or buying their, their songs wherever you consume music, uh, live music is back. So you can see ego, uh, egocentric plastic men at the Grape Room in Maniunk, PA on July 30th, along with one of my Philly faves, Andorra. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, and don't forget about the question and comment line. The calls have been coming in steady and no Saul, still no Saul, but uh, but a lot of other great calls, 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question, leave a comment, and we will play it on a future episode of The Buzz and respond to it uh and don't forget the native plants healthy planet facebook group a ton of new members again uh it's great to see all the interaction so keep it going so you can buy the native plants healthy planet t-shirts by going to our website www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com um, there's a banner on the top just click that banner it'll take you to our teespring store and like we said in the beginning we aren't making any money off this all of it is going to our guests in some fashion or another and uh, so they can keep doing the great things that they're doing. So um, visit our website for links to from the podcast. And then also check us out at Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, really wherever you consume your podcast. When you're there, uh, please leave us five-star review and hit subscribe and share this with a friend. All those things are really great ways to help spread the message and, and – um, Make that circle bigger. Yeah, make that circle bigger. So with that, thanks, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. We will have a buzz episode uh, coming up next week, and it will be, uh, I guess we're talking about invasives or what is an invasive. So until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.